You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. So if you're able, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Again, this is Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 13. This is the Word of the Lord. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its, how shall its, its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. For do pe- nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. I can be seated. Amen. Good morning, everyone. My name is Court. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. I want to welcome you, especially if it's your first time. I just want to say thank you so much. Thanks for making us a part of your week. Uh, we're glad that you're joining us this morning. Okay, so before I jump in, I have a, a couple of things. Uh, obviously, I want to take a little bit of time to address uh, all of the bad news that happened this week. And so that sounds like a delight. I also have a lot of uh, good news announcement that I want to make. So I'm going to start with the bad and with the good and then move on into preaching the good news, which is the best. Okay. So we'll go bad, good, best. Does that sound good? All right. <laughs> so obviously, um, and we'll talk a little bit about this, um, probably as not only as a sermon goes on, but, but as a series goes on, but you know, this week's events, uh, were tragic and, um, all of us probably watched them unfold to, uh, in different ways, but, um, I just wanted to give us a little bit of pastoral guidance as to how should we as Christians uh, address this? How should we approach this? And even back all the way at the beginning of 2020, as COVID began, uh, th- there's been so many events. It almost feels like I was joking with Marco as we were doing a sound check. I thought, you know, almost feels like every week uh, there's this uh, need uh, that I have to get up and address some massive event that's like earth shattering, and you know, pastorally. And, and it, it feels odd. It's the first time in my life that it's been this way where, you know, every other week it's like, here, I need to address something new. And it doesn't seem like there's any uh, any end in sight. But one thing that I have found really helpful, and I hope that you do too, is there's really two ways that we can respond to this. Uh, and I would encourage you to respond the latter. So the first is this. We can viscerally react with emotions as our guide. Or we can, number two, spiritually reflect with scripture as our guide. And I think that the Christian should try to do the latter. The, the, the visceral uh, reaction with emotions as our guide, we, you can almost see that. That's, that's the by and large uh, cultural response to a lot of things that happen. As social media kind of allows for a really quick hitting response. I actually think that it's, it's pretty sad that not only does social media allow for that, but then on social media, there seems to be this massive movement towards shaming anyone who doesn't have a visceral response quickly uh, in the right way. Uh, I actually don't think that the scriptures encourage that. The book of James says that we should be uh, slow to speak, slow to anger, and quick to hear. Uh, and and if, if speaking like I am doing right now over a microphone is powerful, I would say that social media is like a megaphone to the whole world. So that I would consider that speaking. Um, and, and that visceral emotional reaction lends itself sometimes to hitting the nail on the head. Um, and sometimes to hitting everyone over the head, <laughs> just anything and everyone that's around you, because emotions can tend to lead that, lead that way. Um, and I'm not saying that there's no time for emotion or that you need to just squash your emotion. What I'm saying is 
that what we ought to do as Christians is be spiritually reflective, not reactive, reflecting on what has gone on. Uh, how have I contributed to that? Uh, what, 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 is the, what is the Lord up to in all of this? Uh, going to the scriptures to kind of have the lens of the gospel over your eyes, to see things clearly, to, to let things kind of materialize and, and then be able to make righteous judgment. The book of Romans chapter 12 says that we ought to not be uh, conformed to the pattern of this world, be transformed by the renewal of our mind so that by testing we could discern what is the will of God, what is acceptable and what is pleasing to him. That testing is that reflection. That, that reflection with the scriptures as our guide, that not, not everything that we immediately feel in our gut is pleasing to God. Can everybody say amen to that? That's true, right? <laughs> if, you, if you've ever been in that moment where you really feel something in your gut that makes you really, really angry, your reaction, at least initially, isn't always what pleases the Lord. And I would venture to say that most of the time, it probably has its edges. Now, lastly, I want to say, how do you deal with the emotions? Because I don't think that the answer is to, to not deal with them at all. And I would just quote to you what we went through last year from First Peter, which says that we ought to cast all of our anxieties onto Christ because he cares for us. Um, I would say that all of the emotions tend to funnel down towards that anxiety level because if it's fear, then fear links to anxiety. If it's anger, then anger can lead to that anxiety if it's not rightly expressed. And so it's casting these things onto Christ for he cares for you. Um, right before I walked up, a friend texted me a quote from Scotty Ward Smith, and it said, we may not know a lot of things about uh, what's going to go on in the next day, the next weeks, the next months, even the next year. But one thing that we know is that history is unfolding itself toward the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And that everything else is just a subplot to that main plot. Amen. And so when we cast our anxieties onto Christ, it's not that we're ignoring what's happening. It's that we're acknowledging the spiritual reality of what's happening in Christ. And that brings us peace. And so I want to encourage you in that. And I hope that it helps you as you try to make sense of this. Now, now on to a good, good news announcement. In August of last year, our elders came before our congregation, and we made it known that as we were approaching kind of the end of the lease of this facility, we felt compelled by the Lord that we needed to start at least searching for an upgrade to our facility. And um, the reason for that is not only do we have multiple things that we can't do currently in our facility, but we also felt really confident that ownership of the next facility that we were going to be in was probably uh, the aim that we wanted to, uh, to shoot for. And so last December, what we did is we had a first gift fundraiser where we said we want to have some, some uh, semblance of saving so that if something were to come up in the next year, we could really move on that. And so we set a goal, which was a really ambitious goal for us on top of our tithes and offerings, which December is already a big giving year. We said we wanted to raise $75,000 in December. And so, uh, you know, we set that out before our people. And by the grace of God, we hit that number. We raised $75,000 in like 30 days. It was incredible. Yeah, it was awesome. It was really cool. Um, and, and so uh, up until that point, we had... Um, we had committee members uh, scouring uh, the area, looking for building opportunities. We were kicking the tires on a couple of them. None of them really worked out. We didn't feel confident to move forward. Uh, in the meantime, there was also a couple of properties that we saw, but uh, we were really trying to focus on resale. And so uh, we, we continued to just kind of let that be. Uh, and then obviously COVID really hindered our search. You know, like uh, during COVID, we, we actually ended up leading us to say, tell, tell our committee, hey, we're going to have to hold off until this calms down because we can't meet together. We can't talk together. And so um, anyway, in the middle of that, in December, we got a phone call from one of the properties that we had uh, been looking at. And they said, hey, we've gotten an offer on this. But, but the owner, check this out, the owner would really like to sell it to a church. And so um, they just wanted to let you know they're about to sell this property. But they wanted to have your elders at least 
think about it. Here's, uh, here's, the, sheet, here's the sheet of uh, the numbers, and you guys look it over and pray it over. And so, um, so as elders, we prayed, uh, we considered, and ultimately we were like, okay, let's put an offer on this. It's a number that was uh, a lot lower than what the asking price was, but we were like, okay, well, we'll just see and put it in the hands of the Lord. And so um, as of late December, we actually were able to reach an agreement on a little over four acres right down the road from us, and we're in that kind of feasibility period of that land right now. And so that's our big announcement that we have, that we actually have a contract signed, yeah, for a little over four acres. Um, and by, and by God's grace, we're hoping to close in February on that new piece of property. So just to give you an idea of where it is, if you want to drive by, it is if you take a ride out here on Timber Forest, you can go past the Tascacita Road, past Ace Hardware, and uh, right before you get to, I believe it's the new Avalon Memory Care Center, there's two lots there. They're right next to each other. And so it's literally right down the road from us. And uh, yeah, by the grace of God, hopefully we'll be closing on that. So it's really exciting. And we wanted to announce that to you and then also to say, okay, well, what does that mean for us? And give you guys a little, little bit of directives. Number one, uh, we want to celebrate God's goodness and his faithfulness to us um, in that this door really opened and that really they even called us in the first place because they already had a, a cash offer and they could have just moved on and, and that didn't happen. And so we're just really excited about that. Uh, number two, we're going to be doing our due diligence in the upcoming days. So we would just ask for you to pray for wisdom and uh, for favor from the Lord. What due diligence really means is there's some environmental surveys, there's appraisals, there's a lot of things that are happening kind of behind the scenes to see if this, if this land's really going to work for us. And there's a lot of details with that, especially in a post-Harvey uh, city of Houston area that you have to really consider. And so just be praying that all goes well there. Um, and then here's the big one. Uh, number three, try to attend our members meeting at the end of January, January 31st, um, where we're going to be laying out a lot more info, including uh, like the property layout, financial details, tentative timelines, fundraising plans for 2020, all of those things. Um, and, and if you're here, then most likely you, you might be able to make that. Uh, but if you, know, if you know some members that aren't able to come right now because of the, obviously the pandemic and staying at home, we're also going to be videoing the whole members meeting and sending that out the next day. And so just take some time to watch that and kind of hear more about what's, what's uh, on the horizon. So just wanted to say congrats. It's exciting. And uh, hopefully, yeah, hopefully we'll, we'll have some really good news soon. So, okay, now let's jump into the text. I'll, I'll do the best part of this morning, which is to preach the word. Amen. If you'll bow your heads, I'll pray for us. Father, our hearts are uh, just in so many directions this morning. Uh, we want to start by just lamenting for, for, the, for the brokenness we saw this week, hardship, the division, the anger. And God, that um, rather than being that, that galvanizing moment where we all come together and recognize that there's lots to repent for, it, it, it seems to be just something that's just gasoline on the fire. And God, we just cry out to you. We ask for your help, Lord, and for our nation, our nation's leaders, the people of our nation, God, our own neighbors. Help us, Lord. And secondarily, but maybe it's primary, God, just help us to be the church, help us to be the shining beacon of hope to the whole world, and forgive us where we've fallen short, God. But we, we just, we crawl back to the, to the cross and ask, would you help us to just stand firmly in a time of great storm? And to not shrink away, to not be so disgusted that we throw our hands up in the air, but God, to, to turn our face toward a hurting world, Lord, just like you did for us. Lord, also, we just want to celebrate. We want to say thank you so much that you have always led us as a church. This property, we, we didn't uh, do anything to, to deserve or really even to, 
to make it happen other than your matchless grace. And so if it be your will, we come before you and ask that you would make it come to pass in a seamless way. If you have something else for us, God, we just submit to you. But we want to thank you for your goodness, your faithfulness, and, um, <laughs> and that you've always been with us. And now as we turn to your word, God, as we, as we dive into the scriptures, we ask that you would open our hearts, open our ears to hear, open our eyes to see, God. Um, your word stands timeless and true. We just need you to help us to see you rightly through it, God. And as we hear it, Holy Spirit, we invite you now, would you do the necessary work in us in order for us to be the salt of the earth? Because we need you, God, and we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so as Jenna mentioned, we, we've been in the series called A Providential People. We're discussing the vision of the church, big capital C, and also uh, in so doing, what, what is the vision of, of providence? And, and uh, our focus over the, next four week is, over the next four weeks is going to be to unpack the purposes of God for the church, uh, for providence in particular, but also for the church generally. And, um, and, and I want to pre- present a fact to you in scripture to kind of kick off this morning that I think gives us a ton of insight. Um, when we are saved by God, why are we not immediately glorified? Have you ever asked yourself this question? Like if the world is as bad as it is, and it is, <laughs> hopefully this, this week has given you more proof of that. If the world is as bad as it is, and our sin problem internally is as bad as it is, then why did God not, upon us believing, just kind of, you know, kneel from the matrix us out of there and, and get us back into reality, which is the heavenlies, take us out of our sinful fleshly body, take us out of this broken and decaying world and bring us up with him, and that God was mostly just doing more of kind of like, if you've ever seen like an, an alien movie where they just kind of zap people out of, out of the world. Why did God just not do that in the salvation work? It's like, we believe we confess Christ. Boom. He just pulls us out of this thing. Now you might be thinking, well, just because of your church experience, well, that's just not how it works, but really put yourself there. Why not though? Why doesn't it work that way? seems like that would make lots of sense. God's a rescuer. He's doing the work of rescuing. Jesus did everything that needed to be done on the cross. He said, it is finished. Why not? Well, we're not immediately glorified, and this is not conjecture. I'm not making this up. This is scriptural because God intends to form Christ in you and share Christ through you in a broken world. That's his plan. That's his design. There's no other way. God intends to form Christ in you. Think, think of this in the Old Testament. Uh, the analogy would be that the children of Israel are brought out of the tyranny of Egypt and through the, through the Red Sea, right? And then when they get out on the other side, though, they have 40 years in the wilderness before they hit into the promised land. Now, this is an imperfect analogy, but that would 40 years in the wilderness would be our earthly wandering as, as not, not that God's saving the children of Israel from Egypt in that Uh, 40 years in the wilderness. He already saved them from Egypt. But what he's doing is he's trying to get all that was in Egypt out of them in 40 years. Similarly, God has saved us from sin, but all of that sin still festers. And now in our earthly wanderings, Christ is slowly and surely helping to refine us in that he's purging all of that sin that the world has made. It's just made its way to really, really gnarly ways into our our own soul and our own heart. But also that God's plan for preserving the world is that you and I would be displayers of his grace, sharing Christ. One way to put that is, you know, God has always a wanted, desired a people to whom and through whom he could reveal his glory. That's the purpose of the church summed up. God wants a people to whom and through whom he would reveal his glory. 
well, you are that people to whom and through whom he reveals his glory. And therefore to pull you out of the world would be to go against the very purposes through which he created the world. Namely that you and I would be displaying his glory to the ends of the earth. Now you might be like, okay, amen. That's theologically true court. Yes. But then we have to go through what those implications are. Lest we basically just live our lives in the world waiting for the end. Right. And that's not the answer. We're not just kind of waiting out the clock. You guys ever been at work and you're just waiting for five o'clock to come? You know what I'm talking about? Just like, oh, it's like 1.30 and you just, you're done with work. There's no more work to be done. You know this, okay? You, you know, whoever it is that's maybe the, the boss over you or authority over you, they might make their rounds. That's the only time that you're really even looking at your computer or maybe even, even remotely like looking on the Excel sheet. For the most part, you're watching Netflix, you know, whatever you're doing, you're done, Christians, that's not us. We can't be at 1.30 waiting for five and just that's our whole lives. And what that looks like is not necessarily just being inactive. It just, make, it just means being insular. It just means that I'm just going to be about me and my family. Hopefully my kids know Jesus. And then this world's crazy. I'm out of here. That is not the intention that God has for his church. So two things I want to answer, pretty simple questions that I think are important. What does it mean to be salt? And how do we do it? So what, what, is, what does Jesus mean with this analogy? What does it mean to be salt? And how do we do it? Okay, so let's jump in. I want to read again just Matthew chapter number five. This is the Sermon on the Mount, of course, Jesus' most, most famous sermon, starting in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Okay, so of four things that you'll get if you just look, if you were just to search up, like what, what does the salt of the earth mean? These are four things out of a ton that you can get from this text with the analogy of salt, okay? One is that salt is a preservative. So salt was always, and still to this day, you can rub salt into uh, raw meat to preserve the meat from rotting. And this was always used before there were refrigerators, before we had modern technology. Salt was used in order to preserve food. This still gets used today. Like, I don't know if you've ever, you, you, you know this, but a lot of food has a high sodium content. And that's in order to make sure that that food lasts for longer. Higher sodium or salt means that you can actually have that food keep from rotting. So salt's a preservative. Number two, salt has healing properties. You ever heard the, uh, the mantra, don't pour salt in the wound? You know, why? Because it stinks. Now, on the flip side, if you've ever been a kid and you had a scratch on your foot or something, and then you went into the ocean, Galveston, not only did you grow a sixth toe when you got in that ocean, but the scratch also healed with the salt, right? Because it has healing properties. Uh, somebody might even tell you, it, it doesn't, not only with wounds and with cuts, but like if you've ever been really sore, you, you know, maybe your grandmother, maybe your mom might have told you, take an Epsom salt bath, baby. That'll fix it, right? And it does. It helps because salt has healing properties to it. Uh, third, and this is for all of you who had a very fun college life, you know that if you were ever out with your friends having a, you know, an adult beverage, what was at the bar? Salt peanuts, right? They have a little, now it's gross by the way, but they're there. Why do they have peanuts there? They probably don't have any more. Post-COVID world, this is going away, but let's just, let's just all reminisce together. The reason is because salt makes you more thirsty, more drinks you'll buy, right? That, so, so the idea here, the analogy is that salt would make people spiritually thirsty, that that's who we are. Or number four, and the most basic that we all know, and I don't think it's ever going away, is salt's the most common seasoning in the world, right? It seasons, it flavors, it takes the dullness, makes it less bland. That's the, that's the most common use of salt in our world today. And here's the thing, all of these things are true, I believe, and they give us spiritual inclinations when we read this. 
That, that, that you are the salt of the earth from Christ means that the church, the people of God, Christians, are the preservatives of a decaying and rotting earth. That's true. That your presence brings healing to that which is wounded. That you actually create, not through your religious self-righteousness, but through your, just your life and your love, you create a thirstiness in other people for God. They say, I want to know God more because they know you and they recognize something that might be missing. That your life actually comes into the blandness of this world and brings a different flavor, a good flavor into the earth. I think all of those things are true, and that's the general principle. But in order to truly understand this, we must let the brokenness of the world sink in because that's at the very fabric of what Jesus is saying. All of the things I just mentioned is Jesus acknowledging that there's actually something wrong with the world in order for salt to be necessary. Does this make sense? That there's actually a spiritual entropy in the world. If we don't believe that, then we'll have a hard time wondering what the church is for after all. If we think we're on a progression towards more and more holiness or more and more greatness, then we'll wonder why in the world would Jesus want to preserve anything at all? I think this week was a great opportunity for us to really feel this at a visceral level. I hope that you did. On Wednesday, the world's watching, right? Angry protesters turned into rioters, storming the U.S. Capitol, pushing past armed guards, security officers, even fighting them in some instances, one officer being killed later, dying in the hospital, breaking fences, breaking barriers, breaking windows, breaking doors, all to occupy the Capitol, disrupt the certifying of electoral votes for the upcoming inauguration of the president. You know, some were armed, some were dressed in costumes, some were carrying flags, signs, paraphernalia. Sadly, one woman writer is shot in the neck, dies later as she's in an altercation at the Senate chamber doors. You know, what happened on Wednesday as the protesters turned rioters get into the Capitol, it should be denounced by Christians as unlawful. That, that should go without saying, of course, but it doesn't. There are obviously consequences to human actions, and tragically, it ended a human life, and now we're realizing even more. But I think it's going to be discussed. It's going to be debated. It's going to be dialogued for years to come. And that's true of every human event, but I think there's a significant context which provided the space and fuel for this particular event to occur. Like, this just didn't happen in a vacuum. This event comes on the heels of a year that has been filled with vitriol, filled with violence and rioting and looting, and it rivals the worst our country's ever seen. Everybody acknowledges this. The political fervor and fury that's been brewing over the last year, it's got every single person on edge, maybe even you. The election of 2020 fraught with controversy. It lit this fuse. We all witnessed the explosion. And we're all waiting around wondering if that was like in an earthquake when you get the tremors right before the big one. I think everybody's scared. Was this just a tremor or was it the big one? We don't know because it seems huge. But on the flip side, we're like, there were bombs placed everywhere that didn't go off. What if those had gone off? You know, if you lived through 9-11, then you're thinking, wow, this could have been worse. Or if you've lived through even worse events than that. It seems like there's so much that I could say about it. And, and again, like I said this morning, I feel like I'm always in this, in this spot where I could just talk about this forever. But the most tangible and obvious example that this brought to me is the erosion of a broken and hurting and angry and dying world around us that it seems to be picking up pace 
And I know that people probably felt that way ever since Jesus ascended, that it feels like it's picking up pace. But I, nonetheless, Wednesday, it was a great snapshot for us. And I hope it did this for you because it really can be helpful even though it stings. The world you're living in is broken. It is. That's real. That's not church speak. I'm not making that up. It's not like, you know, you've heard that from sermons and from pastors. Like, yeah, yeah, it's broken. I hope that now your eyes really open say, whoa, it is broken. And in the worst possible ways. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he wrote a famous work on the Sermon on the Mount. And when discussing the Sermon on the Mount, he said he thought the 20th century, so the 1900s, proved the text of salt and light more than any other because the philosophy of the world at that time was basically just demolished right before everybody's eyes. The, The philosophy that most secularists enjoyed in the 19th century led to so much, you know, destruction and death that he said, see, The Sermon on the Mount is true. And here we are less than, you know, a few decades later. And it seems like the the earth doesn't learn that lesson. And Christ warned us of that. That the world has an ideology and they just rebirthed that ideology. And the ideology has many different branches and tentacles to it. But the trunk of the tree is that God is unnecessary for life here on earth. That we can build a city and make a name for ourselves. That's Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel scene. Let's build a city with a tower to the heavens and make a name for ourselves. Genesis chapter two is I want you to take the garden and build a city and make a name. That name being mine, that's God's command. Now you might think, well, then why do we have to be here, Lord? <laughs> right? Like why, Lord? Why, why can't we just, like you, if you ever read the story of Elijah, you're like, it happened for him right? He got to go in chariots of fire. He didn't have to die. What about Enoch? You know, it happened twice. It can happen again, you know? Famous Jim Carrey. So you're saying there's a chance. It seems like according to the words of Jesus here in Matthew 5, that the church was born for times like these. And that the truth is we're always in times like these and they ebb and flow, but there's times where it's more acute to the church and we can recognize it and see it. Oh, that's why Jesus said this so that we'd be reminded. The seeds of the church are sown among the barren landscape of the world, not to be trampled, but to preserve the earth. The church is the life. It is the preservative. We are the healers, the taste givers to this bland reality. I've said this a number of times, but hear me again. We We are the alternative to the madness of the world when you walk out the doors. This community, it's an it's a alternative reality. It's like, oh, this is what the kingdom is meant to look like. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, Lord, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We're supposed to try to live that reality with the help of the spirit. What does that look like? Well, we are called to be peacemakers, the people in the room that are the best kind of different to be like Christ. We're called to be the ones with our eyes that are heavenward when the whole world is convinced that what we see is all that there is. We are called, the church, to be humble servants when the whole world encourages pride and power. We are called to be lovers of our enemies. Hear me on that. Lovers of our enemies when the whole world struggles to love even their own family. We're called to be people of honor when the whole world is filled with dishonor and disrespect. We're called to be people that cultivate and build in the midst of a culture that only looks to destroy, tear down, and decay. We are called to be full of hope and full of joy when everyone around us is only cynical and depressed. 
We are those who value relationships and community when the whole world seems to only see human beings as potential virus carriers. We're called to associate with and minister to the lowly and to the downtrodden while the rich and powerful fight over how they can use those people for their own photo ops. Are you hearing me? That's who the church is. We're called to value life in a culture of death, called to be generous and open-handed in a world of tight fists and greed. We're called to be loving fathers and mothers in a time when people aren't really sure that matters much, even the role of father and mother. We're called to pray and fast while the rest of the world is indulging and worrying. We're called to listen to others as though they had something meaningful to say while the world shouts over each other and dehumanizes each other. We're called to humbly repent of our sin in a world of seared consciences unwilling to admit wrong. We're called to refrain from judgment in a judgmental world. Called to have mercy and show grace to others in a society full of anger and vengeance. We're called to be people of truth in a place committed to to snuffing out truth at every corner. We're called to suffer with joy for our reward is eternal in a world that rejects the sufferer and the outcast and has no eternity to look forward to. We are called by our Lord Jesus to be the salt of the earth. That's what he means. Everything about us is meant to be this counterculture swimming upstream and everyone is able to say, why don't we do that? Now, Jesus acknowledges that as we live that, the first inclination is going to be, I hate them for that. But that Christ wins through love and through light and not through hate. Okay, so how do we do it? How do we do it? Well, I think for one thing, it's hard here. It's difficult, right? Because salt is meant to be from Christ here, not a word about doing, but about being. It's interesting, right? Like you are the salt of the earth, not like you have to be doing salty stuff. Or, or like Jenna said before, she said, be salty or you know, something like that or stay salty. No, we are the salt of the earth. It's an identity thing. I don't believe that that means we have no clue on how to apply that truth, but I just want to make mention of that. It's, it's a state of being. So let's talk about that identity. I, I think that we talk about this manner of living and we have to talk about it in a way that recognizes it's, it's an identity that ought to produce fruit, not a fruit in of itself. The new covenant that was bought with the blood of Christ means that Christ has given you a new heart with new desires and he's put a new spirit within you. That's the new covenant. God will not write his law on stone any longer. Mount Sinai, two tablets of stone. I'll write my laws here. No longer. God says, I will write my law on your hearts. You'll have a new heart of flesh. I'll write my law there and I will put a new spirit within you and I will lead you. We're going to be unique. We're going to be set apart. We're going to be different from the whole world. That was the promise of the new covenant. The biblical word for this, check this out, is holy. That's the biblical word. Now, I know that when I say that word, there's already an impression that you have about that because we can't help but have it, right? And I just want to, I want to get that, 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 that impression from movies perhaps out of our head. Sacred has to mean something deeper than long phylacteries and robes. Holy must mean something more than cathedrals and vaulted ceilings. Sanctified has to mean more than stodgy. How about this one? Chastity has to mean more than 
prudeness. Are we, are, we, are we all together on this? When I say holy, I don't want you to immediately default into that which we've all been indoctrinated to see in our minds, right? The holiness of God is the totality of the perfection of God, the total otherness that he is. Everything that simultaneously causes us to desire to know God and experience God, but also makes us fear and tremble in his presence, that's God's holiness. It's like you have an awe and you have a desire to be near. You're shrinking away because you're like, that's something incredibly scary and I need to be closer to it. C.S. Lewis did an amazing job with this in uh, the Chronicles of Narnia with the character of the lion. The, the, the little girl Lucy is terrified of the lion, but always wants it to come back when it's gone. This is the holiness of God that we're really pursuing, that we want. It's in Christ's holy image that God is gradually shaping us into, and it's that very characteristic that makes us salt. I want you to think of this. Jesus was fun enough to be the guy at the wedding that you wanted to hang out with. Have you ever thought of that? Not only that, like he's the guy at the end of the wedding when everybody's like, you know, we should, the, the responsible guy comes in. It's like, we need to shut this down. It's getting out of hand. Jesus is in the back creating more wine because they ran out. Just think about that. That's not what you think of holy, right? The holy guy is the one who steps in and says, this madness must stop. You know, we got to call Uber and get all the keys from everybody here, Right? Jesus was doing something different. Jesus was so committed to holiness, though, that he also fasted for 40 days and 40 nights in the desert. So it's like you get these two images of Christ, right? It's like the guy that's partying at the wedding, but he's also a guy that's fasted for 40 days, 40 nights in the desert. It's like I fasted for a, a, you know, extended period of time before. Never that long, and I didn't go out to the Sahara, you know? Not to mention, not to mention, then the first visitor he gets is the devil, so like, then there's that picture of holiness. How about this? Jesus was tough enough to drive out the money changers at the temple. It's like, oh, but we, like holy people aren't mad like that. Apparently, sometimes. <laughs> or how about this one? He's tender enough to weep at Lazarus's tomb or to rebuke all of the Pharisees that are getting ready to stone an ashamed, adulterous woman. I mean, holiness, you have to, we have to get out of our head what we think that it is, and actually go to the person of Jesus and recognize we're just nothing like it, but that's who he's making us in to be. It's impossible, not just in my opinion, but scripturally, to truly live as salt of the earth without the Holy Spirit. How can we be holy if the Holy Spirit is not in us? If you're a believer, I have good news for you this morning. If you have trusted in Christ, the Holy Spirit lives in you. And that is the most absolute, absolute essential key to being the salt of the earth. And you already have it. Isn't that good news? Like when you read salt of the earth, like what do I have to do? How many Bible studies do I need to start attending? I really got to be holier. It's like, listen, Bible studies are great, but check this out. You already have the key to being the salt of the earth. God has provided it for you by his grace. The Holy Spirit lives in you. What does that mean? Well, check this out. This is what the Bible says. I'm just taking from the scriptures. The spirit directs us when in the ways that we should live. The spirit guides us as we pray. The spirit leads us when we speak. The spirit convicts us when we sin. The spirit comforts us when we suffer. The spirit teaches us when we study. The spirit inspires us when we evangelize. The spirit empowers and strengthens us when we need it the most. All of that is the work of the Holy Spirit and he lives in you. That's incredible, isn't it? The Holy Spirit in us is the most, 
is one of the most unique and amazing truths of the scripture. And no other world religion has this. It's, we have plenty of world religions that talk about God's interaction with man. None that say God decided not only would he wrap himself in flesh and live among us, but then he would live in us. That's crazy. Wrapped himself in human flesh, died on a cross, rose again, and then said, I'm going to go to the Father, and I'm going to send to you the helper, the Holy Spirit. He will live inside of you. I'll put my spirit within you. That takes God with us to a whole new level, doesn't it? That's what Jesus taught. So we can't simply become more effective at being salt in the world through a sermon or through knowing more about salt. And I want you to catch that. Like you can't just go to your dictionary, Miriam, say, what's salt? And then start trying to like inject, that's what I need to be. Everything that salt could be, I want to try to be that. That doesn't work. Instead, Jesus says the salt of the earth is a definitive fact about what Christ has done. And then he turns loose Christians into the world with a submissive heart towards God's spirit. I want to read this quote from Richard Lovelace, and I got to hurry and get to a close here. Richard Lovelace says this about the Holy Spirit. A failure to recognize the Holy Spirit as personally present in our lives is widespread in the churches today. Even where Christians know about the Holy Spirit doctrinally, they have not necessarily made a deliberate point of getting to know him personally. They may have occasional experience of his experiences of his reality on a hit and run basis, but the fact that the pronoun it is so frequently used to refer to him is not accidental. It reflects the fact that he is perceived impersonally as an expression of God's power and not experienced continually as a personal guide and counselor. Okay, I think that he just hits the nail on the head here. The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force that we're just hoping every once in a while pops in among us. But the Holy Spirit is a personal he who lives in us and among us and is always present with believers. This is why the scriptures talk in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus ends the great commission by saying, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is not just a euphemism. It's not just like whenever I tell my son when he goes to school, don't worry, Bubby, I'm always with you in your heart. Okay, you may have heard pastors say that kind of stuff. That is totally euphemistic. Jesus can confidently say that because the spirit lives with Christians and in them. Okay, so I have a few practicals that I hope will help. Because you might be saying, that sounds good, Court, but what do I do with this? This seems really theoretical. Okay, how can we be more submissive and sensitive to the Spirit in our lives? Number one, make it a point to wake up and acknowledge the Holy Spirit every morning. Ask God to help you recognize his presence and commune with him as the day progresses. That's, that's a first step. Thinking through, God is with me every moment of my day, not just in these moments when I decide to acknowledge him. Okay, number two. Open the word and read it, not merely for information, but read it in faith, believing that the spirit will use God's word to speak to you as you read, not just in the moment, but throughout the day. If, if you've ever had this happen to you, you know, the spirit sometimes will bring things to you later that you read like weeks before. And then you're like, oh my God, I didn't even know that. I knew that verse. I, I didn't even know I read that verse. Maybe somebody sent it to you, you saw it on Facebook or something like, oh, and then you started quoting it to your friend. That's a spirit bringing things to remembrance, right? Okay, number three, respond when you sense the conviction or guidance from the Spirit and choose not to ignore him. If you aren't certain that it's the Lord, don't pretend to be, but also don't ignore it. Stop, pray, consider, ask, talk to your friends, 
But the Bible talks about this idea of quenching the spirit. And it's very simply whenever we know, or at least we uh, can sense that the spirit is compelling us, convicting us about something. And we just say, ah, it's not the spirit. That's just something I ate or I'm being weird and sensational and over spiritual. And this can be just kind of suppressing what the spirit's doing. Next, recognize that growing in Christ involves living and moving about in all of life in a dependent relationship with an immaterial person, the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to grow in Christ. It's not just learning more. It's not just knowing more. That's a part of it. But a part of your spiritual growth, the essential, the very core, the very anchor is going to be you relying on an immaterial person, the Holy Spirit, to get to know God. And that without that, there is no hope in all the Bible studies in the world. None of the, none of the Bible studies in the world without the Spirit could ever sanctify us. They just can't. And I am a man who loves the word. I love it. But I'm telling you, on its own, you and I will just be reading another work of literature. We need the spirit of God. Finally, don't fall prey to sensationalism or perfectionism. Sensationalism says, everything I do must be led by the spirit. I actually had, when I led a college ministry, I had someone come to me and and really believe this. They were like, I pray before I eat. I pray before I decide where I'm going to eat. When in the morning, I pray whether or not I'm going to, you know, brush my teeth this morning, that morning or not. They're dead serious. Well, I open this door, not open this door, turn right or turn left. They, They really believe that they could pray and somehow operate that way. And the truth is, I started to challenge them a little bit. I was like, what about the, what happens whenever you do things and you forgot to pray about it, or you just naturally things like involuntarily happen, you know, like those things happen. Like you're breathing right now, did you ask? Or, and, and then it's like, do you need to repent about that? Because every time you breathe without asking, it's like, well, you do, you're just kind of following your own will, aren't you? That's what we would call sensationalism. It gives the impression that in order to walk by the spirit, you have to be overtly hyper-religious, weird, kooky, you know, and sometimes that's what people think. You might be even sitting here thinking, okay, court, talk about the Holy Spirit. You just want me to be overly charismatic. And I'm not saying that. But on the flip side, perfectionism is a problem. Perfectionism says, if I ever act on something thinking that it was, it was the Spirit, but it ended up just being me, then I am a heretical loser and I need to be basically castigated from the church. So I won't even broach that subject. This is perfectionism. It was what leads people to be Bible only. It's like solo scriptura versus solo scriptura. It's where people just like the spirit doesn't do that anymore. Lovelace talks about that. He says, when the practice of the presence of God is maintained over a period of time, our experience of the Holy Spirit becomes less subjective and clearly identifiable as gradually we learn. It is in Christ's holy image that God is gradually shaping us into. It's that very characteristic that makes us into the light. So he basically says, listen, uh, as you begin to grow in Christ, that subjectivity starts to go away, but the subjectivity is there. Do you know why? Because you're still battling against the power of sin in you. So yeah, you're going to have times when you think that the Lord's impressing upon you to do something and it isn't, but that's the beauty of what? The scriptures, community, prayer. There's so many guardrails for this. And the answer can't be that the spirit doesn't lead us anymore because that would mean we're up, it's up to us to go to this and I'm telling you right now, let's, for instance, we've got some single people in the room. You know what this book doesn't have? Who you're going to marry. Like, what do I do? Do I marry this girl or do I not? Oh, no, no, go to the index. Does it have her name in it? She's, what if she has like some biblical name? Her name's Delilah. Oh, gosh. Sorry, man. This, this is rough. Rough news. It doesn't have all of those subjective things. So what do we have to trust? That God, the Holy Spirit, will lead us. 
Is it plausible Jesus was onto something when he called us the salt of the earth? I believe that it is. I want you guys to envision this. Communities of diverse people submitting to the Holy Spirit of God, depending on him alone each and every day. What would that look like? Would that not look like a counterculture to the badness of the world? A community imperfectly pursuing Christ, repenting together when they make mistakes, repenting to one another when they sin, not just make mistakes. Truly leaning on the Spirit's work among them. This may scare you. I just want to say, like, I get it. But if you've pursued righteousness for long enough, then I hope that you've recognized there's no amount of scriptural memorizations, podcasts, YouTube videos that will actually create this kind of supernatural holy life in you. It doesn't have the staying power. In the end, without the Spirit, we either end up discouraged and depressed or prideful and judgmental. There's no third direction. If we don't have the Spirit, we either think I'm nailing it and I'm better than everybody or I'm awful and I'm never going to get this. The only way that we hit some sort of humble confidence is when the spirit steps in, (laughs) provides the humility to us by recognizing I couldn't do this alone, gives us the confidence to say, I'm with you always. The spirit alone is freedom and life and peace and joy. I want this morning for you to pray and just simply ask the Lord to open your heart to be more sensitive to the spirit's work and to help you to submit to him. That's it. Just a simple prayer. God, help me to be more sensitive to you. And help me to submit to your will in my life, not my own. That's being the salt of the earth. If you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray. Father, I'm, I confess to you that there have been times, as I, as I even preach, I'm re- I recognize where, Spirit, you've compelled me in a certain way or... convicted me in a certain way and I, ha- and I have a tendency, Lord, to, to, pr- to push that down. And so I just ask you, Lord, would you forgive me? Help me to be sensitive and not to become numb to that. Father, we, we pray that together as a church. Help us to be sensitive to you, not sensational, but not believing in perfectionism. But Lord, to, to walk in the third way that the world just doesn't offer. Oh God, the, the world's trying to convince us that we're either we're either always right or there is no right to be had. But Lord, there's a third way, and we just want to walk with you in that way. Holy Spirit, we invite you now. As we sing, would you soften our hearts? As we take of your supper, would you soften our hearts? Would you? bring clarity to our minds. We trust you, God, and we ask these things in Jesus' precious name.